Thank you, guys. And You know, I, I want to take this moment to, I want to praise this church for something, too. I, again, I think this is a great church. It really does. And today, uh, you know, as so we lost the screens, and uh, that would be an excuse for some of you guys to tune out of worship. I know some of you didn't know the words of the songs, and that's okay. You know, it just we have to roll with the punches a little bit. They've got the lights on. It's a little bit different vibe today. But that's one of the things I, I do appreciate about this church. And I've been to churches before where you could, you could see within the church two or three different congregations. That when they would sing songs that were, were more modern, there'd be, you know, these people over here would be singing, but these people over here would just be sitting there. And then they'd sing an old hymn, and these people would be singing, and these people would just be sitting there, whatever. And our church isn't like that. Even though we've got a diversified group, we've got young, we've got old, um, or let me rephrase that. We've got, we've got young, and we've got more seasoned um, people that are here. So, oh, John, you're not even close to it yet, all right? Come on, man. Um, uh, I was in youth ministry. That's like dog years. So that's like, I'm 432, so if you want to kind of know that, all right? But uh, no, you guys do a great job with that. And I just want to thank this church for that being that kind of church that can be a, a diversity of people, but one congregation. And that is great. And so you guys are doing a great job. And um, it means we're not going to have PowerPoint today. And I would love to tell you, I had these amazing PowerPoints illustrated. No, it's, I, actually, James was going like, should I, should I mess with the screens? I said, really, the PowerPoint's not that important today. So we're going to be fine, fine without it. So we're gonna, it just means we're going to... Um, we're not going to have the words on the screen for the, for the scripture, so if you, we're going to be in Acts chapter 17, picking up there again. If, you've got, if you don't have a Bible with you uh, and you want to use um, the, uh, the, the, the chair Bibles, it's page 987 if you want to use that. So that's where we're going to be going in just a moment there. But um, as we're talking today, as we're picking up in, in Acts again, I want to ask you this question. Have you ever tried to communicate with somebody when the two of you spoke totally different languages? I think in California, we've all had that experience at one time or another, trying to communicate things and get things across. Think about it, what, it's, what it would like when it's not maybe a thing of language, but you've got totally different worldviews and the way of seeing things. For example, if uh, this is one thing that's on the PowerPoint, so you have to look up closely here. Got here. A lot of you have seen me walk around with this. When I hold this up, what word comes to your mind? Water? Okay, you do not know me very well. All right, who said toilets and coffee? That's what you think there. Now, if I were somebody that spoke no English whatsoever, and I were to hold this up here, and I were to say coffee, am I talking about what's inside it? Am I talking about the shape, cylindrical, the material, metal, the color, blue? Am I, or am I talking about a concept like drink or hold or whatever? You have no way of knowing that at all. That's how different, especially in the world of concepts. So somebody that had no idea of this at all, did anybody think name, name brand, Hydroflask? Okay, so at least you did, all right. You're very strange, I want you to know that, okay? But that's why you fit in this church so well, okay? So we're going to look at today what it's like to communicate with people, and there go my notes again. Maybe like a couple of weeks ago, I'll forget some of my points and we'll get out quicker. So let me see if I can keep my notes in place. Jackie, you didn't have to laugh, laugh at that one quite so hard, all right? Um, so if you look at this, by the way, this is coffee. And I tell people all the time, it is my only vice to which I will admit. Okay, so that's, that's, that's it. So, all right. We're going to pick up where we left, left off last week in Acts chapter 17. But as we do, let me remind you again what has happened previously in the book of Acts. We've seen so far that Luke has recorded that the book of Acts is about 
the growth of the gospel from this little band of uh, Jewish, uh, Jewish believers in Jerusalem, and it's continued to grow. I just remind you of it a little bit that the gospel got a jump start during Pentecost when the gospel went out to all these people who had come to Pentecost to celebrate a, uh, a great uh, Jewish feast there at that time. But these were all people who were very much connected to Judaism. But the gospel expanded from there to the half-Jewish people of Samaria. Then it expanded to a God-fearing Gentile family of a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman centurion. Remember, God-fearers were people who believed in the God of the Jews, but for some reason did not choose to become fully Jewish, usually because of the rule about circumcision. But for, some other, or for that, for what other reason? It continued to grow and eventually founded this new church in Antioch that became the Missional Sending Church. And they sent out missionaries around all over Asia in the first missionary journey that was Paul and Barnabas. So where we picked up now in the book of Acts is they're on their second missionary journey. After the first missionary journey, so many people had become believers who weren't Jewish that the church leaders had to get together and say, okay, what are we going to do about all these non-Jewish people? And that's when they decided you didn't have to be Jewish to be Christian. So that, so anybody who likes a good cheeseburger, all right, you can thank the Jerusalem Council so that you don't have to be Jewish to be Christian, all right? So that's, I know that's a silly side thing. I'm sure, I'm sure all of you would follow Jesus if it meant giving up cheeseburgers, but it doesn't because of that. So now we're picking up Paul in the second missionary journey, and he's now taking the gospel over to Europe. And we saw last week that they had, well, the last two, two weeks, they preached in Philippi and then down to Thessalonica and to Berea, and Paul, escaping from some of the crowds, goes down to Athens. And that's where we're picking up at this point in the, book of, uh, in, in the book of Acts, chapter 17. But Paul runs into a new kind of barrier at this point. He's running to what I call clueless people. Now, not clueless in the sense of being mean, but how do you talk with somebody who's clueless about Jesus or about the Bible or even about a Christian worldview? Well, that's what Paul runs into in, the, in Athens. So we're going to read through the rest of the chapter there. So it's a little bit of a long passage. Um, but we're going to just hit some of the highlights in it, so it's on page 984 if you need it. Picking up in verse, I can't, the, the blue light, I can't see some of my notes here. Verse 16, that's where we're picking up there, all right? So here we go. While Paul was waiting for them, that's uh, Timothy and Silas, while he was waiting for Timothy and Silas in Athens, he was deeply distressed when he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with those who worship God as well as in the marketplace every day with those who happen to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, if you don't, we'll talk about who those are in just a moment, uh, also debated with him. And some said, what is this ignorant show-off trying to say? Others replied, he seems to be a preacher of foreign deities because he was telling them the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. They took him and brought him to the Areopagus and said, may we learn about this new teaching you're presenting? Because what you say sounds strange to us, and we want to know more, I want to know what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling or hearing something new. In other words, this was the beginning of social media right here, all right? That's where it started right here. So Paul stood in the middle of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that you are extremely religious in every respect. For as I was passing through and observing the objects of your worship, I even found an altar which was inscribed to an unknown God. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. 
the God who made the world and everything in it, he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by hands, neither is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. From one man he has made every nationality to live over the whole earth and to determine their appointed times and the boundaries where they live. Now, I know that sounds like it's a sermon, okay? And just like mine, it's a little bit confusing sometimes, okay? But we'll, we'll break it down a little bit. God did this. He did this so that they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Since then, we are God's offspring. We shouldn't think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, in other words, idols, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God now commands all people everywhere to repent because he has set a day when he's going to judge the world in righteousness by the man he has appointed. He has provided proof to this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Well, when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some began to ridicule him. But others said, we'd like to hear from you again about this. So Paul left their presence. However, some people joined him and believed, including Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. It's a long passage. Thanks for staying with me. Let's pray. Father, wow, thank you for this opportunity Paul had. Thank you for the way that you have blessed us in so many ways here with this with this scripture father thank you for allowing us to be able to to see this message to these people who had not heard the gospel before and father through this let your holy spirit speak to us please and help us know how we can be better able to understand the culture around us and better able to communicate the truth of jesus to everyone we meet in jesus name we pray amen all right, guys, thank you. So there is so much in this passage. I mean, there is so much. I agonized. In fact, poor Hunter, I had to apologize to him. I didn't get him the final notes until 4 o'clock yesterday because I kept writing and rewriting things. But we're not going to go over everything. If I were not your interim, I could afford to break this into three, four sermons or something like that and have time. But as your interim, I don't have that many sermons left with you guys. So uh, we're just going to hit the highlights a little bit here. So if you hear another pastor preach on this at some point, his points may be totally different than mine, okay? Because there are a lot of spiritual truths in here and we can't touch on all of them. But because there is so much, let's kind of unpack the passage for a little bit here. So we're going to kind of walk through some things here. First, Paul did not plan to be in Athens. That was not his original plan at that point. Uh, we think he was probably planning on going to Rome, but because Emperor Claudius had kicked all the Jews out of Rome, he had to make that change. So he decides to go down to Athens. Now, You've all heard about Athens, you've seen movies about Athens, that kind of thing. Now, Athens used to be a really important city, but that was 400 years before this, back in Greece's golden age. It was this amazing city back then. It was the seat of, of, of what we consider modern philosophy now at, the, at that time. But when Paul was there, Athens had been reduced to a city of only about 10,000 people. In other words, it was about half the size of Madeira, maybe even a little bit smaller than that. And... Um, it was because it, when it was taken over by the Romans, it was captured by them, it just reduced the population way down. But Athens was still known as the seat of philosophy, 
and of, of, of uh, mental gymnastics of that day. It still had that reputation. In other words, Athens was the quintessential university town. Now, Fresno considers itself a little bit of a university town because of Fresno State. Anybody watch the game last night? Anybody, nobody watched the football? All right, so it doesn't mean anything. All right, Debbie was the only one. All right. So, um, uh, but if you've ever been to a real university town, I'll give you a quick, quick example of one. My brother has a degree from University of Georgia, which happens to be in the town of Athens, Rome. Athens, Rome has a population of 26,000. The University of Georgia has a population of 36,000. In other words, there's more college students in that city than there are actually real normal people. Okay, so that's, that's what it's like there. But it's this, you know, this, this typical university town there. And if you've ever been to a university town or lived in a university town, you know the vibe is very different. I lived near Stanford for a while, and it just, it just feels different around Stanford there in Palo Alto. So, as I mentioned, Athens only had about 10,000 people. But it was estimated that the city had about 30,000 altars, shrines, or idols in the city. That's from one of their contemporary Roman historians who had written that. So in other words, there were three times as many idols in Athens than there were people. In fact, one Roman historian of the time actually wrote, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a person. And so as Paul is decoding this city, again, he's there, he's fled from Berea, He's waiting for Timothy and, and Silas to, to finish cleaning up things in Berea and help the church get set up there and come join him. So he's going around and he's learning about the city. Now, that's one of the first things we need to do as Christians. Whenever we're meeting people, whenever we're getting to a, a new community or we're, we're in a new situation, we should be students of the culture. We should be learning about it. That's one of the first things I did here is try to understand what makes Fresno Church tick. All right? That's what you always have to learn there. And, that, and churches should always know what makes our community tick. And so he's walking around, he's learning, he's doing, he's doing a demographic study is what he's doing. And as he walks around, he sees all these idols there, and it just crushes him. And I, I get that. I get that. There are certain parts of Fresno, certain parts of California that I walk through, and my spirit is just crushed when I see people that are just wandering lost without, without a sense of hope and purpose given by God. And that's what Paul was facing at this point. And so he's, he, this is overwhelming him. So he decides to follow his standard practice of going to the synagogue and teaching with the Jews and the God-fearers, giving them the message of salvation. But at the same time, he decided to go out to the marketplace called the Agora. And that would be similar to somebody going out to River Park. I mean, it's even more than River Park. Like, uh, you know, if you're, if you're under 24, you probably just don't hang out at River Park, okay? But certain people do, and, that's, and there's certain places that we can go where people just, just hang out. All right, in Texas, they go hang out at Walmart, which is just weird to me, all right? But that is, that is what they do, all right? So he went to where the people hang out, where they, and he would start talking with people. And the, this was sort of very normal at that point. Uh, it was very common to talk with people there. If we skip down to verse 21, I'll remind you that it says, Now all the Athenians and the foreigners residing there spent their time on nothing else but telling and hearing something new. So remember, this is a university town. They love discussing ideas and just talking about it. And Paul's marketplace discussions caught the attention of some of the big fish in the philosophical world, the Epicureans and the Stoics. Now, this is not a philosophy class. I'm not going to go into a lot about these guys. But just know they were, they, were, they were the big fish, but they were very different. The Epicureans basically, as far as God was concerned, they were materialistic and believed the gods were totally indifferent to people. 
They were what you might call deists. You may have heard that word before. They believed that the gods worked up there, but they didn't really care about people. Now, I may look over the edge of heaven, Mount Olympus at some point, and go like, well, that's cute what they're doing there, and then go back to whatever gods do, okay? They were just not concerned with that at all. In fact, for all, they were practically atheistic, that the gods just had nothing to do with people. The Stoics, on the other hand, were pantheistic. They believed God was in everything and God was a part of everything. They were the closest thing we have to more like New Age. They were believing you could find God in everything. God was in Mother Nature. God was in the trees. God was in the rocks. God was in the people. God was in the houses. God was in the air. God was in the very essence of the atoms there. And, that, uh, and, and the material world was really just something that sort of was restraining God. And material world was really the false world, which is coming close to a Christian thought, but not quite. But they thought the greatest thing was to be liberated from the materialistic world. Now, they didn't, they didn't do mass suicides or things, but they wanted to be restored to the divine after the materialistic world because God was a part of everything. So, actually, they were probably more like the Force if you're a Star Wars fan. That would probably become the Stoic philosophy there. I saw a few of you smile when I said Star Wars. Okay, that was a, that was a nerd test right there, all right. So, all right. So, these guys are up there, and, and so they were basically intellectually curious. They said, Paul, come talk. We'd like to hear more about this. They certainly weren't impressed with Paul because in the translation, the, the Christian Standard Bible that we use, they referred to him as, as, what is it? They called him an ignorant, uh, let's see, what did they, I got to look and see what they, I remember the word here because I looked at so many different translations. They said, um, well, I've lost it here. Uh, ignorant show-off, that's what our translation called him there. What is this ignorant show-off trying to do? The word there is very interesting. I, I don't usually go into the Greek words a little bit, but the word they called him is, what is this seed picker doing? All right, now, doesn't that sound, sound like something you'd hear in Alabama, wouldn't it? How are you doing there, you old seed picker? Or something like that. I'm going to get, I'm sorry, I, I'm not, if you're watching from Alabama, I didn't mean anything mean by that. I'm, I'm always nervous about the cameras. But what they meant by seed picker is they're talking about like a bird or an animal that goes and picks up seeds that are on the ground. And the idea is, they were saying he was somebody that was picking up seeds of philosophical thought and was spouting them out, but really wasn't understanding them. In other words, there were, there were some people thinking, we're going to get him up there and we're going to prove how ignorant he is, that he thinks he gets his concepts down, but he doesn't really do it. Again, it's much like social media today, okay? So the Areopagus was the comments you know, section of, of, of anybody's post right there. So they were going to do that. But here's the funny thing. They thought Paul didn't understand what he's talking about, they didn't understand what Paul was talking about. That was, it really was a switch there. And let me explain what I mean by that. Because when Paul was talking, they were going to talk about Jesus and the resurrection. And they thought he was talking about a couple of new gods. Remember, they had gods everywhere. So he said, there's this new god, Jesus, and there's this new god called the resurrection. The resurrection is, in the Greek word, is feminine. So they thought Jesus and his consort, resurrection, these new gods, and thought, Ah, maybe these are real gods. We'll add them into the pantheon. That'll be fine. We could do that. The Athens was where the, where, where the uh, Parthenon was, and they could just add more gods up there if they wanted to. So that's really, they were, the, you know, they were like, this doesn't seem odd. Let's see what it's all about. And they take him to this place called the Areopagus. That's a little bit confusing, too, because the Areopagus had two meanings back then. First, there was that, the Acropolis, where the, where the Parthenon was, there was a little outcropping there called the Areopagus, and that's Greek for the hill of Mars. Ares was the, was the Greek word for the god Mars. And so if you ever hear somebody talk about Mars Hill or you hear about Mars Hill Church, it's named after the, Acrop the, the, the Areopagus. 
But they probably didn't take him up to the Areopagus. The Areopagus was a place where this group used to meet. But nowadays they met at a little, uh, like, a, like an outdoor theater that was near the Agora. So they just took him over to the Agora where other people could see. And it was sort of like the court. So the Areopagus was this place, but it was also the court that actually had a lot of stuff to do with judicial and cultural life of Athens. So he was actually before an actual registered body of people that were supposed to figure these things out. So it was really a great opportunity. It'd almost be like getting to go speak before the city council here in Fresno. In fact, it was probably a lot more honorable than, oh, no, I won't say that, never mind. I shouldn't, I, this is not a political sermon, so stay off of that, Daryl. All right, so that's where they took him out. They, they, apparently they wanted to be entertained by Paul's message, learn more about it, and maybe be able to pick it apart. So now let's look at Paul's message real quick. All right, so Paul said a couple of things in here. I'm just going to go through in, in verse uh, 22 now. Paul says, you know, I, I see that you're really pretty religious. In fact, I was walking around, I saw this altar to an unknown God. Now, archaeologists have never found an inscription, an altar to an unknown God. So what this probably was is, well, let me put it this way. We haven't found it archaeologically, but we have found writings about it. Apparently, many years before when Athens was having a plague, one of their leaders that Paul quotes later here said, Let's, here's this idea. They took a flock of sheep and released them in the city center. And they said, wherever these sheep go and then they lie down, we're going to sacrifice them there to whatever God's altar is nearest. And if a sheep lay down where there wasn't an altar nearby, they just erected a temporary altar to an unknown God. It was their way of sort of covering, their, you know, covering all their bases, saying, okay, some God out there sent this plague. We don't know which one it is, so we're just letting the sheep direct us to whatever God it might be. And if there's not one around, we're figuring that's a God we don't know yet. So here, God, whoever you are that we haven't met yet, we're going to kill this sheep in honor of you, okay? Please take away the plague. That was their mindset back then which was really weird for these Epicureans who didn't believe the gods had anything to do with it. But we will, we'll, we'll go, uh, a lot of people that have religious beliefs that aren't based in Christianity have weird reasons for being a, having those religious beliefs. But that's, we'll go on from there. So remember, these are people that have a completely different worldview from Paul's. So Paul says, this unknown God, I want to tell you who he is. And then in verse 24, he goes on and says, God is the creator of the universe. The God who made the world and everything in it he is Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in shrines made by hands. Now, that's very much Judeo-Christian worldview. King Solomon, when he dedicated the temple, one of the things he said, it's in uh, 1 Kings 8, 27, if you ever want to look it up. He's dedicating this temple. They spent all these years building, and he said, hey, we're dedicating this temple to you, but we know you do not dwell in a temple made by hands. We know this is not where you're really living. We know that all the heavens, the highest heavens, could not contain your majesty, O God. But we make this temple here just as a place where we're, that we're going to recognize we're focusing on you when we're focused on that. The highest heavens cannot contain you. How much less this temple I've built? In verse 25, Paul goes on to say, He's neither served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives everyone life and breath and all things. By, by the way, this is the stuff that would have been on the PowerPoint if you're having trouble following it. You don't really take notes on it. I'm just kind of letting you know what Paul was telling him. So Paul is saying, God's a creator, and he, and he can't live in any kind of idol or shrine that you built. In other words, it's sort of a nice way of saying, I see you're religious, and I'm going to tell you about this new God, but at the same time I'm telling you all this religious stuff you've done, yeah, it doesn't mean anything. It's nothing. You can't really rely on that. So he's kind of teaching them, but also kind of lead them away from this stuff at the same time. He says, God is the sustainer of life and that he needs nothing from us. 
God doesn't need our sacrifices. So many people do sacrifices to God to say, this is so I can get something from God. And God's never told us that it's quid pro quo with him. God gave us Jesus when we didn't deserve him. We were still sinners. God offered us salvation. And there, was no, there were no strings attached to it. That our worship to him, whatever sacrifices we make to him, and again, we don't sacrifice sheep and goat, but we sacrifice with our money, we sacrifice with our time, with our energy, with our love, that those are things we do because we love God, not because we're wanting anything from him. He says that God doesn't need that from us. He goes on in verses 26 and 27, says, from one man, talking about Adam at that point, he's made every nationality to live over the whole earth. And he's saying God is the ruler of all nations. Even though you're hearing about a God that, was, that you think was back in Jerusalem, was like a, just a localized God, and that was an idea they had back then. In fact, you'll find one time when, the, when one uh, nation was attacking Israel and God helped them defeat Israel, defeat the people, they said, oh, it's because he's the God, their God's the God of the plains. We, we fought them on a flat surface. Next year, we'll fight them in the hills. And guess what? They lost again because God wasn't just limited to the plains or whatever. But, you know, they had gods for everything back then. I mean, no matter what, there were all these different gods for just every certain thing. Did you know, in fact, did you know that actually there was a god over the doorstep of your house? Okay? The god Janus was the god of your, the doorstep over your house. And there was reasons for that, okay? And so we could go into it. I mean, they had it for everything, all right? So, goes on, he's a ruler of all nations. He's not limited to one people. He wants all people to seek him. And he says, he's not far from us. He's saying, this God that you say you don't know, he's not a faraway God. He's accessible. You could get to know him today. And then verse 28 and 29, he says, God is the father of mankind. For in him we live and move and have our being even as some of your own poets have said that we are his offspring. He's saying, we depend on him for life. Your life came from him. You are connected to this God already, even though you don't know it. And you can't capture him in an idol. You can only capture him in your heart. That's what he's setting up for. And then he goes to the final thing to kind of, to get them together. He says, this is important to you because one day God is going to judge this world. This God is coming back. He's going to judge this world through Jesus, whom he sent. And then he talks about how Jesus, how God raised God the Son, Jesus, from the dead. And that's when he lost the people then. And it happens sometimes. I, every once in a while I can see when I lose one or two of you guys here in a, in a sermon. But these, when he starts talking about that, about God raising Jesus from the dead, I mean the Stoics must have just had an aneurysm at that point. Because they're like, what? What kind of loving God would take a guy who had been restored to the universe and bring him back to this flesh? You were insane, Paul. And so then they reacted to it. And they just basically cut him off. That was the end there, okay? Maybe it was like a city council meeting. I don't, I don't know. But anyway, um, so this is what, what happened here at that point. So that giving you sort of the summary there. All right, I'm going to be on time today. I know I'm going to be, all right? So let me talk about, here's where we can get to the points, the, sort of the application. I want us to look at Paul's method real quick. So we've unpacked the passage, we've looked at Paul's, uh, Paul's message that he had, now let's look at his method. First, Paul's dealing with clueless people, he started with something they understood, some way to relate to him. Even though Paul didn't agree with their religious beliefs, he acknowledged that their religious belief was important to them, and he used their beliefs to build a bridge to them. And that's something we, we always need to do as Christians. 
Back in 2001, when Billy Graham did his last crusade here in Fresno, I had a friend who worked for the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And so the first night of the crusade, he and I sat in the, sat in the end zone there of uh, Bulldog Stadium. As it's getting ready to go, and he said, okay, I want you to watch something. One of the first things that Dr. Graham's going to do is he's going to quote something from today's Fresno Bee. And absolutely, that's one of the first things he did. And he said, whenever he goes to a town, he reads the local newspaper because it does two things. It helps him understand the community and what's important to them, and it helps the community know that Dr. Graham cares about them. Now, for you younger people, I know, why would you read the newspaper, okay? But back day, that, that was the way we did it back then, okay? Again, Ashley, you may not know, back in the day before the Internet, they printed out the Internet overnight, and then paper boys delivered it to people's home. In the morning. So that's, that's what it was at that point. So, Ashley, I know you know what a paper is. I just happened to be, you, you were standing in the light, so I saw you there, okay? Um, so anyway, that's, that's what he's been trying to understand that. Christians are not always good about that. Has anybody ever heard the term Christianese? Anybody here speak Christianese? We do it all the time, okay? I've heard testimonies like this. I was, I was, in, I was in the service, and I felt the Spirit tugging at my heart, and I stepped out in the aisle and was washed in the blood of the Lamb. Somebody who doesn't know that goes, okay, you're in the service, so it was a military thing, and then there was a ghost there that was pulling at you, and then there was a bloody lamb in the aisle for some reason. All right, that's what, it doesn't make sense to people like that. But when we do Christianese, that happens. I heard a story of a guy that picked up a hitchhiker. As they were driving down the road, he, he was thinking, how do I witness to this guy? And they saw a sign that says, Jesus saves. And he said, what do you think about that sign? And the guy says, you know, if Jesus is thrifty, I guess I ought to be also. Like, Jesus saves at Chase Manhattan Bank. I don't know what, you know, that's, they don't know what that means. What does it mean? If you hear things like this, like abundant life, we know what that means as Christians, right? But to a non-Christian, what does abundant life mean? Does it mean they're richer? Does it mean they have more power? Does it mean they have more sexual prowess? It could mean different things to different people. We know it means living in the fullness of, of God and living with him daily and being able to see the world through his eyes and be able to relate to him. But to somebody who doesn't know Jesus, the word abundant life is meaning, the phrase abundant life. Or I, this is one of my favorite ones. You only hear it Christians. Do life together. Okay? You're doing life together. And that's like, I, you both have maximum prison sentences? What does that mean? You're doing life together. What's, I mean, you, really, you think about it, we don't know what that means. The people don't know what that means. Or I use this all the time, having a quiet time. All right? Is that like a time out? No, we know as Christians it means having spending daily devotional time. But we use terms like, or the phrase born again. I, you, Mona, you've got the shirt on too. I love the shirt. It's a conversation starter shirt there. It's born squared. And so, um, um, you know, it could be a great conversation starter shirt because most people wouldn't know what that means to be born again. Even when Jesus said it to Demas, he says, born again, I mean, like, go, go back? I mean, how does that work, you know? It, it was just confusing to him. So we've got to watch out for the Christian ease when we're doing that. So Paul started with something he understood and tried to build a bridge from there. And that's the second thing Paul did, is he built a bridge. He looked for this thing, he saw this unknown God, and he said, there's the bridge I can get to. And sometimes it's hard to find that bridge. Has anybody ever heard of Don and Carol Richardson? They were missionaries from Canada. They worked in Western Papua New Guinea. Maybe, has anybody ever read the book Peace Child? 
Ah, okay, if you've not read the book Peace Child, amazing story, okay? And I'll just give you the highlights of it, and I'm not going to do it justice real quick. But Don and Carol Richardson worked with the Sawi people, S-A-W-I, people of Western New Guinea, for many years. When they told them the story of Jesus' crucifixion, the Sawi people saw Judas as the hero. Because in their cultural worldview, they honored people who, could, who tricked or betrayed other people, especially people like of an opposing tribe or opposing village or whatever. That was a high value for them. So Judas was the hero. Jesus was the fool for having been tricked into being betrayed. And they're like, that, wow, this, how do you, no, like, like Jesus is the hero. They're like, no, you got it wrong. Jesus, Jesus messed up there. And they were trying to figure out how to communicate it. They wanted to help the Sawis figure out, understand that the sacrifice of Jesus was for their benefit, for their salvation. And as they studied the tribe's culture, they discovered this finally. When two villages were at war and they could not reconcile the war, they had a very strange and powerful but painful tradition. That if the two villages were at war, parents from one village would take their child and give it as a gift to the other, other village. They would willingly give up their child as a baby to the other village to be raised by that village. And with the village accepted it, then the way this, the, well, the culture went, as long as that child lived, there would be peace between the two villages. And they realized. Now, in some ways, that's horrible theology. Jesus did not give up his son Jesus. God, the Father, did not give up his son Jesus to make peace with us, to, to appease us. He did not give it as, as a sacrifice so that we could be at peace. But it was a close enough bridge for them to begin to understand that said, God, you have been at war with God because you have been given over to forces that are opposed to God. That your world culture, just like my world culture I grew up with, is opposed to God. And God wanted there to be peace. He wanted to rescue you from this culture that you have. He wanted to bring you into his family. And so when Jesus gave up his life on the cross for you, it was to cover the mistakes you had made, the sins you had had in your life, and to build you, bring you into a relationship with him where he could be your friend forever. And when he did that, people can understand, and people of the Sawi tribe began to convert to Christianity. Not all of them, of course, but that was the open door for people who to do that. Now, our culture is not that messed up, but it's close to it in some ways. And so we begin to look at how we can penetrate the cultures that are around us, who do not have a clue who Jesus was, and find a way to open the door for them to understand what God has done for us through Jesus. For some groups, it's hard to learn to trust. We're talking about trusting God is something they could never, ever imagine. I've not seen anything in my life that says I could trust. Tell me why I should trust Jesus. For others, they can't get past the works kind of stuff. I've worked all my life to get to where I am. Why can't I work to be where, to where, to where you know, I want to be with God? And it just doesn't work that way. We've got to find ways to do that. So that brings us to the third step. You, find, you study the culture, start with something to understand, build a bridge, then present the message clearly and carefully. And that's what Paul did. I know that many of you in this church have family and friends who do not know Jesus. In fact, 
I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by the number of people in this church that told me they are the only believer in their family. You know what? And it's, it's not your job to get everybody saved, but it is your job to figure out how to communicate Jesus to them in a clear and understandable way. And the job of your church is to help you figure that out. Maybe it's to help you find study materials. Maybe it helps you understand how to communicate doctrinal truths clearly. Maybe it's just to pray for you. And I've had the pleasure of many of you, if you've said, I'm going to go be visiting a neighbor, a friend. We have one of our church members right now that I believe is even out visiting some relatives to share the gospel with them. And so it would be our privilege to be praying for you as you're doing that. Because like you, we want your family, your friends, your neighbors, the people you love, we want them to come to know Jesus just as we do. So our job is not to judge. So we don't have to, you don't have to worry about judging them. You can always be respectful. Because our job is not to judge, but to offer clarity about the meaning of life and to offer healing for the ravages of sin in the lives of those people around us. Remember, people out there have been taken over by sin. And it's our job just to help provide healing through God. So the last thing is ask for a response. Okay? When Paul mentioned the resurrection of Jesus, that pushed some of the listeners over the top. At first, it was embarrassing. They realized that, oh, he's not talking about another God. He's talking about actual physical resurrection. That was embarrassing for them. But then it freaked those Stoics out. They're like, why would this happen? And so some people ridiculed. Some people just said, you know what? You're crazy. And that's going to happen. There's going to be people who look at your talking about Jesus and just go like, you're just nuts. Or that's fine if you want to believe that superstitious stuff, but we're not going to, and you just got to let it go. And say, okay, I understand that's where you are. And that's fine. Maybe later we can talk about it, maybe not. You just wait, just continue to love them. Some people delayed. That's probably the most difficult one because just delaying. They said, oh, we'll hear more about this from you later. And we've all been put off by people that said, you know what, um, i got to go right now, but we'll talk about it later, and then you never do. That, so our job is to kind of look for opportunities to bring that up. Uh, you know, when those people said that to Paul, some people might have been saying, seriously, we need to consider this. Let us come back and think about it. Others were might maybe were just politely ending the conversation. But it mentions that some believed. We only hear two mentioned by name, but we know that there were others because it says there were others with them. But there was Dionysius and Damaris. And we don't hear anything about either one of them anywhere else in the Bible. Tradition says that Dionysius, who was a member of the Areopagus, he was one of the council members there, that tradition says he became the first bishop of Athens. Uh, maybe it did, maybe it isn't. I don't know. That's just tradition. And we don't know anything about Damaris. But we do know this. Even though we don't know for certain that a church ever formed in Athens, Paul mentions Athens in some of his other letters it's under the phrase Achaia which was the name of the province there but we do know that more and more people became believers and Corinth just down the road had a strong powerful messed up but powerful church so we do know that some believed and that's a good enough reason to make the effort of what Paul did so I said one of the things we need to do is response so let's talk about your response here's what I want you to do four things I want you to think about in light of this passage First, I want to encourage you to become students of culture. Start looking at the, try to look at the cultures around you through God's eyes. That could be the culture of your neighborhood. 
the culture of California or your community. It could be the culture of your job. Jobs have, could be the culture of your family. Trust me, families have different cultures. To understand that culture and begin looking for ways to build that common ground with them. Find out what you can do. I always try, when I meet somebody new for the first time, always try to find some way of saying to them, you know, try to get them to say, hey, it's a small world, isn't it? Because I want to build a connection in some way to let them know that, that we've got something we could talk about, something we can, we can deal with. And then present whenever possible, present the message of Jesus to them lovingly and patiently. And then give them the opportunity to respond. And it, whatever the response is, accept it graciously. Okay? Because the Holy Spirit is the one who helps them make the decision. You're just the one who gives them the opportunity. Does that make sense? And then finally, as I always say this in most of our sermons, if you need to make response to Jesus, if you're sitting out here and you're thinking, you know what, I have never really had that kind of response to Jesus where I said, I'm going to accept the sacrifice that Jesus made for me on the cross, and I'm going to yield my life to him. I'm going to acknowledge him as Savior, and I'm going to accept him as my Lord, my boss. We want to give you the opportunity to do that. So Hunter's going to come back up here and lead us in, in, in a close. We're doing a closing song today? We're not doing a closing song. We're just going to, okay. So, all right. So I'll just pray. They're just coming up for, who's doing that? Okay, got it. I, sh I should look at the schedule when he sends it to me, and I didn't. So, all right. Uh, I was trying to get this sermon down. I'm only two minutes over, so I'm feeling good about that. All right, but don't let that take you away. Let me leave you with this again. If you have not made that decision to accept the salvation Jesus is your Savior, to acknowledge his, his sacrifice for you, and to accept his lordship over your life, we want to encourage you to do that today. So after the service, Hunter and I will be back in the back. There'll be, uh, you've got Anthony and Red and Terry here, our, our board members. We're happy to talk with you too. We would love to talk with you about that. If you don't have time today, set an, we'll set an appointment with you. We want you to know Jesus like we know Jesus, just like Paul did to the Athenians. We want you to see the worldview that helps you acknowledge the God who created everything is too big to be controlled, to be contained in any idol, and is really not that far away from you because he sent Jesus to die for you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this message again. Not my message, but the message Paul gave the Athenians. Thank you, Father, for what Jesus did for us on the cross. And Father, today, I pray that each one of us will be able to have something we can look at to say, this is where, Father, we can be more like your son, Jesus. This is where we can have more of him in our life and where we can do a better job of sharing this good news with everybody. Thank you, Father, for entrusting us with this message. 